Today we are going to be learning um, about the mitzvah of Svirah Sa'imer. Uh, so it's not really connected to the parsha per se. It's more connected to the time period that we are currently in. Uh, today is Erev Rosh Chodesh. It's the day before Rosh Chodesh Iyar. And the Rebbe would always emphasize how what's so unique about the month of Iyar is the fact that it's the only month that has a mitzvah every single day of the month. All the other months, you have the holiday of Pesach, it's only for eight days. You have the holiday of Sukkot, also a certain amount of days. But the special mitzvah of Iyar, which is the mitzvah of Sfira Sa'imer, is a mitzvah that encompasses every single day of the month. And so at any point during the month of Iyar, at any point during Sfira Sa'imer, it's always a good time to learn about um, about Sfira Sa'imer, and it's something that's very practical and relevant, that in addition to the actual um, the actual mitzvah of counting the Oimer, there is certainly a message that the counting of the Oimer brings to us in our day-to-day life, not just for the 49 days of the Oimer, but it's a, a concept that we are able to, it, to incorporate in our daily lives every single day of the year and every single day of our life. So let's get straight into it. What is Sfirah Sa'imer? So on page two, source number one. Usfartam lochem, you shall count from the day following the Passover holiday, when you brought the Omer offering, seven complete weeks. So what we know so far is two things. That on the second day of Passover, we brought an Omer offering. And from that day on, when we bring the Omer offering, we're going to count seven complete weeks. What is this Omer offering? So when the new seed, when, when it turns spring, Right during the winter, uh, wheat and barley, these things, there are no crops in the winter. It comes the spring, it's a new season, it's a new crop for the year. A Jew is not allowed to eat any of the crops that had grown that year until the second day of Passover. On the second day of Passover, um, a group of Jews would go to a designated spot near the Holy Temple where there was um, uh, grains of, uh, uh, of barley that were growing. And even if it was on Shabbos, no matter when it was, they would harvest the barley and they would do it with a very big fanfare, which is a whole conversation for itself of why. But the point is that on the second day of Pesach, they would go, even if it was on Shabbos, and they would harvest the wheat, they would, um, they would grind it into flour, take that flour, and they would bake special breads that were matzah, they were not chametz, you have to remember it's Pesach. So they, they would have to, and, and it's not just because it was Pesach. Generally, everything that was prepared in the Holy Temple was matzah. There were only two things that were chametz, which we're going to discuss soon. So they would bring these special breads, and uh, they would offer it onto the altar. Once this, uh, this, this omer offering, omer is a measurement. So they would, they would, they would uh, harvest a, an omer measurement of barley, bring it to the Holy Temple, and they would bake it into these you know, matzah breads. They would offer it as, a, as an offering on the altar, special mincha offering. And after they did that, now all crops are permitted to be eaten in the, in the land of Israel. So before the second day of Passover, the crops were called chodosh, the new crop. And then after the second day of Passover, now they're called yashon, they're the old crop. And you're only allowed to eat the yashon, the old crop. Now, the Torah tells us that on the day that you brought the Omer offering, you're going to start counting seven weeks. Until the day after the seventh week, you shall count 50 days. And then you shall present a new meal offering to God. 
the words are a bit cryptic, but basically you have to count seven weeks, which is 49 days. The day after the 49th day, after the seventh complete week, on the 50th day, we're going to offer a new meal offering. What is this meal offering? From your settlements, bring two loaves of bread as a wave offering. Now, we already just brought bread. The difference is that the bread, the matzah bread that was brought on the second day of Passover was from barley. The bread that is brought now, after counting seven weeks on the 50th day, this bread comes from wheat. They would take the wheat, and they, and they didn't have that whole, uh, that whole uh, how do you call it, that whole event of, of harvesting uh, the wheat. They would just take wheat from the new crop, bring it to the Holy Temple, prepare, the, prepare the, the, the flour, and they would bake two breads. They shall be made of two-tenths of an ephah measurement of wheat meal and shall be baked as leavened bread, as chametz. They are the first harvest offering to God. Uh, just to clarify a few things, once that Omer offering of barley was offered to the Holy Temple, everyone was allowed to eat anything from the new crop. You were allowed to eat barley and wheat, whatever you want, all types, of, all types of grain. However, in the Holy Temple, they were still not allowed to bring flour for the meal offerings from the new crop until... 50 days later, which is the holiday of Shavuot, Shavuot, which means weeks, after counting seven weeks, once they would bring the wheat meal offering that was baked as leavened bread, that was baked as chametz, then you're allowed to bring whatever you'd like. All the, you're allowed to bring uh, wheat, you're allowed to bring flour from the new crop to the Holy Temple as well as a meal offering. So this is the process. Omer offering on Passover, the Omer offering was barley and it was baked as matzah. And then you have counting seven weeks, counting 49 days. On the 50th day, they would bake these breads from the new crop. It was wheat meal, it was wheat flour, and they would bake it specifically as chametz. This was an anomaly. This was one of the only things were allowed to be baked as chametz in the Holy Temple. Again, on Shavuot, there's no uh, there's no, uh, it, uh, there's no, how do you say, prohibition of having chametz at all. This is not, this is not the big deal. The fact that you're baking chametz is not a big deal, but the fact that you're baking chametz in the Holy Temple, that is a big deal. Which is telling us that not only is chametz permissible on Shavuos, on Shavuos chametz is now a mitzvah that is brought in the Holy Temple. It's not only permissible, now it's holy. Let's see, from Sefer HaChinuch, Source number two, to sacrifice leavened bread from the new wheat harvest on Shavuot. Sorry, commandment 307, to bring the wave offering, the two loaves on Shavuot. What does this mean? To sacrifice leavened bread from the new wheat harvest on Shavuot. This is what Torah calls the new meal offering. It consists of two loaves, as the verse states, from the settlements, bring two loaves of bread as a wave offering, two-tenths of an ephah of wheat meal. They would do as follows. They would bring three saw of new wheat and rub them and pound them just like the meal offering, just like all meal offerings and grind them and make two loaves from them. Each loaf was seven handbreadths long, four handbreadths wide, four fingers tall. They were square. They were baked on the day before the holiday and on the morrow after their waving, they were eaten by the priests on that day and half the night. These breads were not brought onto the altar at all. In fact, you were not allowed to bring any chametz onto the altar. They, were, they, they would wave them in front of the altar, in front of the holy temple, in the temple courtyard. And then they would give these breads to the koanim to eat. Now, this whole idea 
of Svirata Omer. It seems very technical. It's like an agri- agricultural thing. You know, for whatever reason, at the beginning of the spring, we're going to bring one offering, count 50 days, and bring another offering. This is a way of thanking God and um, bringing to our awareness that all that we have comes from God. And there are many mitzvahs that we do um, that uh, bring this awareness to the forefront of our consciousness. I mean, just the fact that we wake up in the morning, we say, Moda'ani, that's one of them. We're always thanking God for what we have. However, like everything in the Torah, there is a deeper meaning to everything, to every process. Not only that, um, the, this mitzvah of, of these offerings in the Holy Temple are only relevant, really, in a practical sense, in the presence of a Holy Temple. When you have a Holy Temple, but today we don't have a Holy Temple. So are these mitzvahs irrelevant? How can we understand the meaning of these mitzvahs in our own personal service to God uh, at a time where we don't have the Holy Temple. So let's hear from, from the Rebbe. This is, a, this is a talk, I believe, from 1954. Yep, 1954. Page three. Between Passover and Shavuot, we count the Omer. In other words, there are three time periods. You have Passover, you have the Omer period, and Shavuot. The distinctions between them. On Passover, Chametz is forbidden. During the Omer period, it is permitted. On Shavuos, its consumption is a commandment. The Kohanim were obligated to eat from chametz breads. The two loaves were specifically made of chametz. You know, throughout the year, if you want, you don't have to eat chametz. You can eat matzah all year round or not have any type of bread. But on Shavuos, the Kohanim didn't have a choice. They had to eat chametz. This raises the question. If chametz is forbidden on Passover, how does it suddenly become an article of a mitzvah with two loaves specifically of chametz? Now, what's the big deal about chametz? We'll say, yeah, on Passover, you're not allowed to eat chametz. But as Hasidus teaches us, it's not just something that was revealed in the time of Hasidus. This goes even further back um, in many of the, the, uh, how do you say, many of the teachings of, uh, of, of uh, great Jewish sages from previous generations. And they explain that chametz represents something actually very evil, very terrible. Let's see source number three. The difference between chametz and matzah is they have the same ingredients, flour and water. What's the difference? Chametz represents ego as expressed in the fact that it rises. Matzah represents humility in that it does not rise. So number one, Chametz is the ego, matzah is the absence of ego. Ego is the root of all evil. In fact, we want to talk about the most evil um, concepts, most evil representations that we have in Judaism. We talk about Amalek, we talk about that, that, that those, those devilish people that went and attacked the Jewish people and their descendants throughout all the generations. Take Haman. The only man that came this close to actually wiping out the Jewish people. Um, what is their greatest sin? What is the greatest characteristic that expresses their vile nature? Their egos. Amalek had an ego to the sky. Haman had a terrible ego. Ego is the root of all evil. Chametz, which is basically bloated dough, represents ego. Matzah represents the absence of ego. So the question is, on Passover, we get rid of the chametz in order to, to express the idea that ego is a bad thing. So fine, after Pesach, we'll say, look, it's not 
prohibited, it might be permitted in some situations, but the real question is, how is it possible that we can get to a point where ego becomes a mitzvah? That's essentially the question here. Source number four, we bring a quote from the Alter Rebbe, where he explains another interesting distinction between chametz and matzah. This is the main difference between chametz and matzah. The bread of chametz, which has flavor, symbolizes a person's intellect, which likewise has a flavor. The bread of matzah, on the other hand, is called bread of the pauper, lacking any flavor at all. It represents humility and nullification. That is why the matzah is called bread of faith, because faith transcends reason. So here we have two points that are important to keep in mind. On the one hand, chametz represents ego, which is the root of all evil. Matzah represents humility, which is basically the absence of that which causes evil. And the other distinction is that chametz has flavor, which represents our mind and our intellect. And matzah is devoid of all flavor, unless you throw some stuff on it. But for example, during the Seder, when it's a mitzvah to eat matzah, we do not sprinkle salt on the matzah. We don't dip the matzah into salt. This is one of the reasons, because the matzah has to be flavorless. It has to be just simply flour and water without any specific type of flavor. Why? Because it represents faith in God, which transcends all intellect. Source 5. Before the exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel were sunken in the 49 gates of impurity. This is a Kabbalistic concept representing the idea that in impurity itself, there are many levels. And when the Jewish people were in Egypt for 210 years, they had managed to really sink to the bottom, to the very, very bottom of tuma of impurity. They were not receptacles for godliness. As the verse says, you were naked and bare. You had no mitzvahs. You had nothing to make you worthy of processing divine revelation. God himself, the king of kings, personally revealed himself and rescued them from Egypt. No one else was able to do that. No other spiritual or divine power was able to go and rescue the Jewish people from the lowest pit of Egypt, of, 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 the, of the impurity of Egypt. Only God himself had to come and pull them out. Since, in other words, they for sure could not pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and no one else was able to pull them out. Only God had to take them out. This was the ultimate gift. Since this was not a result of their own efforts, but merely a revelation from above, the experience did not change them internally because they did not have the necessary capacity. It's like going into a prison and pulling someone out of prison. Yeah, let's say it was a guy that deserved to be in prison. For whatever reason it is, you just pull them out and you give them freedom. Yeah, they might be free to roam around, but they're basically the same person, the same prisoner internally. That happened with the Jewish people. The Jewish people did not have the tools with which to become transformed on that first day of their freedom. It was the revelation that drew them to God. At the time of the Exodus, they hadn't yet cleansed themselves of evil, and their animal souls remained potent. So when the Jewish people left Egypt on that 15th day of Nisan, it was a very interesting and precarious situation. They're free, but they're not internally changed as of yet. They're free because God revealed himself, but they do not have the capacity to absorb and to process this divine revelation. So now we have a quote from the Rebbe which explains this in the methods, or, or I'm sorry, in the, in the terminology of chametz versus matzah. The explanation is as follows. Chametz represents ego and arrogance, which is the source of all forms of evil. 
Therefore, on Passover, when we are in the process of the exodus from Egypt, we need to escape from Chametz, totally eradicating it from our possessions. When a person was pulled out of jail without his own rehabilitation being the reason for his freedom, but he was pulled out by someone else, you have to make sure that they're not going to come in contact with anything that can cause them to go back into jail. You have to really keep, the, you have to keep watch on them, make sure they don't go out at night, make sure they don't have access to alcohol, they don't have access to a lot of different things that can cause them to go down that spiral that's going to cause recidivism and, and bring them back into jail. So when the Jewish people were pulled out of Egypt, they were pulled out of the impurity of Egypt, which is represented by ego. At that point, we have to cleanse them of all ego. They have to keep away from it. They have to keep away from it as if, you know, it's, it's the worst thing in the world. And it is. During that initial process of exodus, ego must be completely out of reach. But Shavuos comes after the process of the counting of the Omer, during which we transform the seven traits of the animal soul. As Chassidus teaches us, that the human psyche is a reflection of the divine psyche. The divine psyche has seven emotional traits, starting from chesed down to malchus. Each one of those seven is, is constructed of seven. And therefore, every day that we are counting, it's not just arbitrary. God just chose a number. God took a very specific number, seven weeks. Each one of those seven weeks has seven days. Each day, we work on another character trait, and we deal with it. We deal with it patiently. We give a full 24 hours for each character trait. And once we've elevated all seven, by elevating seven of each seven, at that point we come to Shavuos. At that point, Chametz is no longer a contradiction to serving God. To the contrary, we then reach a state where the Chametz can be and therefore must be utilized in our performance of Torah and Mitzvahs. For the loftiest accomplishment goal is to transform darkness to light to make the very darkness shine, to take ego and allow ego to be the platform from which we're able to serve God in the greatest way possible. Therefore, on Shavuos, we are specifically commanded to bake chametz. In other words, like this. You know, many times, uh, again, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert at this, but if, let's say someone is suffering from alcoholism. So what's essentially the answer? They have to get off of alcohol. And even a little bit of alcohol can drag them down. Um, and people deal with this their entire lives and will never have even some wine. Even with the, the smallest amount of alcohol, they're going to stay away from it because just the, the, the reaction to even a little bit of alcohol is something that just pulls them down into the bottomless pit of alcoholism. So you'd think that perhaps that's also how we have to deal with ego. If you realize that you're in the bottomless pit of Egypt, you're, you've, you've, you've sunk into the depths of what ego can drag you down into. So now, in order to be pulled out, in order to remain free, you have to keep away from ego at all costs. But the process of Sfira Sa'imah, which starts on Pesach and culminates in Shavuos, is teaching us something else. It says, no, ego was the root of all evil, and that's what dragged you down to these very dark places. When we're going to pull you out of those dark places, it's not just in order to run away from darkness. Initially, you have to run away from darkness. Initially, you have to keep darkness at bay. Keep away from it, because you don't have the tools with which to deal with darkness. The ultimate goal is to eventually engage with that darkness, 
and to utilize that dark, reveal how the darkness itself is light. You are going to take that darkness, which initially, you're going to take that ego, which initially was the root of all evil that you experienced throughout your life, you're going to engage it in a way that you're going to transform it and elevate it, that that itself is going to be the cause for so much light and for so much divine energy. So that's the ultimate goal. Initially, we have to keep away from chametz. The ultimate goal is to elevate chametz, that that itself should become a mitzvah, and not something that's, um, that, that that's, uh, you're allowed to do, that it's permissible. No. We want to turn chametz into something that is obligational, something that it is itself is the root for kedusha for holiness. So let's continue on page 6. The explanation. Chametz represents ego, arrogance, and rationalization. So we're going back to the original question from 1954. They're asked, how is it possible if Chametz was the most terrible thing to have during Pesach, how is it possible for Chametz to, to, to become a mitzvah? The opposite of matzah, which is called bread of the pauper, which does not rise or have any flavor. Therefore, on Passover, when the people of Israel left Egypt, Chametz was prohibited. Not just because it is the root of all evil, but Chametz also represents the idea of intelligent engagement with God being intellectually involved, but they didn't have the capacity to do so. At that point during Passover, they had simplistic faith. They were humble and faithful. And they were willing to run out into the desert following Moses, and they didn't know what they were going to eat. They didn't know what's going to be with shelter, what's going to be with water. They didn't ask any questions. They followed. However, even though they were so faithful, and they get credit for being so faithful, but internally they were empty. Their intellect, their chametz, was not yet in a desirable state. But on the holiday of Shavuos, after concluding the work of refining oneself during the counting of the Omer, their intellect became a vessel for holiness as well. At that point, chametz became worthy of a mitzvah. There are two ways that a person can serve God. One way is to approach the service of God. God, whatever you want, I'm going to do. Makes no difference what it is. Makes no difference if I understand it. If I want to do it, you said so, I'm doing it. That's it. You have a faithful servant. Another way of serving God is that a person engages his mind and his heart and his pleasure in the service of God. He takes the time to learn and understand, to meditate upon the ideas. And when he comes to serve God, he does so with what we call in Yiddish, kishmak. It's pleasurable. It's exciting. It, it makes everything rush. You know, he, he gets this, this adrenaline rush when he starts to serve God. Why? Because he understands and appreciates what's going on. These are two legitimate ways of serving God. And there is an advantage to each one. Let's talk about the first one. What's the advantage of serving God with Kabbalah to all, with just accepting the yoke of heaven and not having, not having any questions, just saying, God, whatever you command me to do, I will do. The advantage is, he'll do everything. There's no questions. So he's going to follow all the instructions to the team. The disadvantage of this is, the downside is, that while your action is perfect, but what about your mind? What about your heart? What about your power for pleasure and desires? What, what happened to all of that? It's completely disengaged with your divine service. 
you've skipped your psyche. You've outdone your psyche. You, you went around it. And you put it all on the side and you've committed yourself to act, to do whatever God wants. On the other hand, if a person engages in serving God intellectually, there's a lot of pitfalls in that as well. Because sometimes you don't understand, sometimes you don't appreciate, sometimes you have a hard time with certain things. So what's the deal? On the other hand, if you manage to, uh, to get very emotionally and intellectually involved, the way you're going to serve God, you're, you're, you're engaging your entire self in the service of God. So where is the proper balance? So page seven. In our day, we do not physically offer the sacrifice of the two loaves, but it is still relevant to our spiritual journey during those three periods. Our sages said, in every generation, a person must view himself as if he left Egypt today. We must always strive to escape the constraints of our body and animal soul to leave Egypt in a spiritual sense. We do so in the following order. At the outset, corresponding to the actual exodus from Egypt on Passover, chametz should not be consumed, meaning we should not scrutinize everything from an intellectual viewpoint. Our personal perspective might be skewed. Instead, focus on humility and accepting the yoke of God. That is something that transcends intellect. When it comes to the beginning of our service, initially, one has to be willing to accept it all. To have it with simplistic faith. I don't understand. I don't appreciate it. I don't have a feeling for it. I don't want it. God wants it, so I'm going to do it. And it's no wonder that you don't understand or want to do it. Your mind is somewhere else. You've been conditioned to want other things. You've been conditioned to understand things very differently than the way Torah teaches us about reality. This idea is applicable not only at the outset of our general journey to Judaism, but in every situation that can be considered a beginning. Even someone who's already very knowledgeable in Judaism, every day is a new day. Every new mitzvah, it's a beginning. For our sages said, in every generation, meaning in every situation, a person must view himself as if he left Egypt today. Therefore, this approach applies to every situation. Focus less on your own perspective, as we said earlier. Even righteous people need to strive to escape their limitations. So initially, when you're approaching a new area of Torah, a new mitzvah that you've never done before, or just simply a new day in life. The basis needs to be faith. I'm willing to do it. I'm ready to do it without question. Now, once you get over that limitation, however, once you leave your Egypt, your constraints and limitations, comments is no longer prohibited, even if you cannot fully transform into holiness. At that point, it is time to focus on your internal character and intellect, your personal chametz, the flavor of your psyche, and align it with your spiritual journey. The final goal is, when you reach a state in which you could and therefore must bring your chametz, your intellect, to become a part of your spiritual journey and a vessel for godliness, transforming it entirely. So how do you do that? How do you reach a level where you're able to take your intellect and properly train it to understand and have a love and a desire and a pleasure in the service of God, the Rebbe concludes, this is the advantage of Chabad Hasidic thought. Instead of focusing on external inspiration, it gives the individual his own path to God, making his mind and heart a receptacle for godliness. When a person learns Hasidus, 
specifically as, as explained in Chabad Chassidus. Chabad is the acronym of Chachma Bin Adas, which are the three parts of the intellect, of the human intellect. Chassidus is all about bringing a person to the next stage in his, in his journey, in his or her journey. After we have that basic Kabbalah soil, we're ready to submit ourselves to God's, uh, to God's will. If God wants something to be done, we're willing to do so. Then, once we're ready to transform our flavor into a flavorful Jewish experience, for that we need to utilize the tools of Chabad, Chabad Hasidus, which teaches us how to take ego and to take our intellect and to really use that as tools with which to serve God. You know, there's, there's a story that I, I say often. Um, there was once a Hasid of the Alter Rebbe, his name was Rabbi Mardachai Lepler. And he lived, he was from the select few Jews who, because of his business, was allowed to live in, in St. Petersburg. Uh, there was a very small Jewish community there, and St. Petersburg was basically the Manhattan of Russia at that time. And so the Chassidim once asked him, he said, how is it possible that you're in St. Petersburg, you see everything that's going on, and yet you still remain the same Chassid as if you were living in a, some backwater shtetl? So he said, my ego protects me. Is it really ego? I mean, one of the things that the Alter Rebbe teaches us is how ego is a terrible thing. You have to be involved in self-nullification, and vital. So how could ego protect, you know, the ego, which is the root of all evil, is actually protecting you from falling into the bottomless pit of evil that is available in St. Petersburg. So he said it's very simple. You know, because of my business, I have to walk on the main thoroughfares of St. Petersburg, and I pass by the restaurants and the cinemas and all these different things. And uh, you don't think I ever want to walk in? Yeah, many times my Yetzirah comes and says, you know, go and taste a little bit of the food. It smells delicious. Just taste a little bit. You know what I say? He says, really? I'm a chassid of the altar Rebbe. I'm the Rebbe's chassid. I'm a student of the Rebbe. I'm going to give in to this little desire to have a little bit of non-kosher food? No. I'm not going to be enticed. Because you know who I am? I'm a student of Alter Rebbe. I'm one of his greatest students. So I, I overcome it at that point. Then he wants to schlep me into the cinema. I said, me? A chassid of the Alter Rebbe? I should lower myself to the point that I'm going to walk into the cinema? So he says, you see, because I have such pride in the fact that I'm a chassid, I'm so, I have such pride in the Chabad chassidus that I'm learning and that I'm engaging with, that pride is saving me from getting schlepped down by the powers of impurity that are found in St. Petersburg. Um, I'd just like to end off with a very interesting thing. The Talmud, in Tractate Saita, there's a, there's a conversation about ego. Uh, if ego is a good thing or a bad thing. And uh, one of the rabbis says that, that a, a Torah scholar needs to have an eighth of an eighth. All right? So you have to have an eighth of an eighth of ego. And others say, no, you shouldn't have any, anything. So what, what's the secret about the number eight and the eighth of an eighth? So if you look at the numbers, eight is the only timetable that is constantly decreasing. And I'll explain. Eight times two is 16. One plus six is seven. Eight times three, help me out of here, it's 24, right? So four plus two is six. Uh, eight times four is 32. Three plus two is five. If, as, as you go up, basically as you multiply eight, the, 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 how do you say, 
the result is actually something that's lower than eight. In other words, what this is teaching us is that although ego is the root of all evil, in Judaism, there's no such thing that there's something in our world that is completely beyond the pale. Everything can be transformed. If it's channeled properly, then that itself could become the reason for proper bittle, for proper humility. So, the general concept that we learn from this process, from Passover, Sfirah Sa'imah, and then Shavuos, the fact that we go from absolutely no chametz to chametz being permissible and then chametz being a mitzvah, is that although at the very beginning we might be in a situation where ego is definitely going to drag us down, and therefore right away in the beginning one needs to cleanse himself completely from all ego, no, but that's not the ultimate. It's not about cleansing yourself from ego. It's about transforming yourself internally to the point that ego, that all those things that originally had caused you to do bad things, at one point you will be able to use all of these things in a proper way and channel their energy in a divine and positive fashion. Any uh, questions, thoughts? All right, seems pretty simple and straightforward.